Father, we, we thank you that you would gather us today not just to worship Christ, but to remember that he is a man of sorrows, that he came to taste death and to taste confusion so that he could empathize with all those who lead and serve and sorrow to say, I'm with you to the end, and there is resurrection after crucifixion. There is new life after the tomb. There is an answer for every hidden mystery of pain. We love all brothers and sisters, whether they be far away in Albania or they may be near here in Spartanburg. We love the brothers and sisters who sorrow. We pray for them, asking that they would be endowed, saturated with a fresh wind of the Holy Spirit's comforting embrace, unexplainable, supernatural hope and peace, that they would be able to believe when all circumstances say doubt or run. But we ask that this day, O oh God, would be a day where the Holy Spirit astonishes, breaks into darkness, and gives us a new love for your church, the great benefits of your church, that together, bruised, bloodied, weary, together, we walk across the bridge of Christ's life and death and resurrection into heaven. We thank you for those that you have led into heaven this morning around the world. Led them across a safe bridge built by Christ. May we finish our race well, loving them and loving those who don't know, don't know you yet. And we invite them, O oh God, we invite you to bring them with us on the journey. Pour out the Holy Spirit to fill up the bridge to heaven. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I woke up Friday morning to three sentences that were on a tweet by Mark Dever. I couldn't get them to leave my mind. I don't think they ever will. Before and after America, there was and will be the church. This nation is an experiment. The church is a certainty. There could not be any lines that better represent what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 2 regarding the eternal building that God is constructing made of people, the church. Nations rise and nations fall. Leaders are born and leaders die. But the church is like an old man sitting in a rocking chair. He's watched farmers plant. He's watched contractors build. He's watched times of prosperity. He's seen times of depression. He's seen dictators that rise up and do devastating effects upon nations. And he's seen nations that seem invincible. Yet all of a sudden they collapse from within or from without. And yet he, the old man in the rocking chair, the church, stands across the time. Why is it so? Why is it the church will stand forever because we know that the church has been chosen by God. Despite all of the 
satanic frenzy that tries to imprison believers and burn buildings and force the church underground, we know that the church will stand forever because it is the bride of Christ chosen by God as a gift to Jesus, and he will present her, the church, to his son Christ in heaven as a gift forever and ever. Ephesians chapter 2 says it this way, consequently, Ephesians 2.19, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ as the chief cornerstone of the building. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Holy Spirit. If you're keeping count, this is the third metaphor that Paul uses in Ephesians 2 to describe his church. And the reason he uses so many symbols is because the church is so great it can't be captured by one. He first said the church is like a country that accepts aliens, strangers, foreigners, and refugees. So they have a place. That place is called the kingdom of God. Then he said the church is like a family where you, lonely and desolate, have brothers and sisters and a new father who is our king. And today he says the church is like a building, a temple, a structure in which you are living stones built together to form an eternal work structure alive called the church. Let's see how the church is built up. It has a foundation, as we saw last week, verse 20. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the foundation upon which this building is rising, the foundation is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every word out of his mouth was obedient. Every action out of his body, every motive of his heart, obedience. And all of the prophets and the apostles, they talked about the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And this is the foundation upon which this mighty temple, the church, is rising. Whenever I teach on Ephesians chapter 2, it is impossible for me to not go to 1 Peter chapter 2. I normally tell my preaching students, stick with one passage. It's enough. Don't go to another. But I, I don't think you can separate these two the beauty of the rising temple. First Peter 2, as you come to Christ, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. I love the concept of living stones here. I, I know a lot of contractors in this church and city you go to a construction site where there's a load of bricks or blocks, and you just the last thing you think about is they're living. And yet Jesus Christ refers to you as someone who was not living, inanimate. And now the life of Jesus Christ, He's alive forever. He was alive before time. He will be alive after time. And Jesus Christ has looked at you who was dead in sin and breathed into you eternal life that comes from him and is forever connected to him by faith in his life, death, and resurrection. So how is it with you this morning? Have you ever come to a place in your life where you said, I want the life, the eternal life of the life giver, Jesus Christ? It's your choice. This is how Peter says it. You can accept Christ, whom the world has rejected. 
and you will be accepted by God. Or you can deny Christ and in order to be accepted by the world and you will be rejected by God. Peter reminds us that God is the great builder and you are the stones that he's using for his great house, the temple. In him, the whole building, this temple, is being joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. I love the picture here of, of a building that's rising up because all over America today and all over, the, all over the world today, people are meeting in all sorts of facilities. Some are meeting in traditional church sanctuaries. Some are meeting in cathedrals. Some are meeting in rented gymnasiums. And some are meeting in renovated car dealerships. And one day God will knock down all of these physical structures to reveal the true church because all you're sitting in right now is scaffolding. And the true church made of living stones is being built up invisibly yet visibly even as we preach. Don't you know when Paul gave this temple of the true church the joy that must have flooded the the Ephesians because they were in a city and in the middle of that city was the temple of Artemis. The temple of Diana, the interchangeably the names. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world had 150 columns, each of them marble, granite columns, 60 feet high, holding a roof. And don't you know that they had spent all of their life in pagan worship at that beautiful structure and now they turned to Christ and they turned away from that and they traded the exquisite look of of a beautiful, intimidating, jewel-filled, gold-covered pagan temple, and now they're in little, tiny, dirty, small, confined house churches. How intimidated they might have felt no longer having the blessing of that pagan temple. But Paul wanted these believers to know that there will come a day when all temples and all governments, and all institutions, and all universities, and all buildings on this earth will fall. And the only thing that will remain standing is the church of Jesus Christ. Everything else is scaffolding in the world. The only thing that stands in the end is the church. It's so easy to be intimidated. Look at all the things that are going on in the world today that the world says that is of chief importance. And they're all going to end up on the ash heap of history. Except the church. It remains forever and ever. God says, I'm building you into an eternal temple that will outlast the greatest and most powerful of history. Just think how Gentiles in this city, non-Jews felt in Ephesus. They were one time outcast. They heard the message, you do not belong, you will never belong. And now God says, yes, you belong, and I will include you, Gentile outcast, irreligious person, pagan worshiper, and now I will bring you in. I will make you a living stone in my temple forever. There is a place for all who believe. There's a movement that's gained a lot of progress over the past 10 years, probably more than that, I I haven't been around for 21 centuries, so I'm sure it's come and gone. But I know in the past 10 years, there's an anti-church movement going within the church. Strong. This is how it goes. People saying, oh, I belong to God. I just don't need the church. 
I love God, but I serve Him my own way. I serve Him according to my own time. I serve Him my own schedule. I hear a lot of people that say, I'm a part of God's global, universal, timeless church, but I'm not a part of a local church. To which the Bible will respond, yes, you are a part of God's global, universal church. And you give evidence that you belong to that global church by your identification with a local church. You belong to big C, proven by your love for little c. The New Testament was not written to big C. The New Testament was written to believers who lived in towns like Ephesus and Thessalonica and Philippi and Smyrna. Cities with individual congregations of people trying to do life together. The New Testament knows nothing of you living your Christianity alone by your schedule, your aloneness. It's always doing life together. So many people say, well, I'm just I'm serving God in my way, and I feel, keyword, I feel that God's okay with that. For those words to come out of your mouth, you just invented theology. You just came up with it. And that's how a lot of people cope in life. They don't want to believe something that God has said, so they invent something else and ask God to come bless it. And they say, since I feel that he agrees with it, he agrees with it. Here's how it works. You read the Bible to know how God feels, and then you adjust your feelings to his feelings. Not asking him to adjust his feelings to your feelings. You want to know whether you're worshiping a real God or an imaginary God? If you're worshiping a real God, then you are often having mental collisions with God. And those collisions often result in him asking you to rearrange the furniture in your heart because he doesn't like the way you've arranged it. But it's not you making up something that's just anti-blatantly visible in Scripture and then asking God to come bless your new thinking. When your thinking is wrong, he changes it. When your financial spending is wrong, God changes it. When your moral behavior is wrong, God changes it. The goal of the evil one is to get you out of community. The goal of God is to bring you into community with other living stones being built up together. Just today, just read all the togethers in the Bible. There's 56 togethers in the Bible. And I love that Tony Moretta reminds us, it is so grace that God would allow us to be together. Look at all the things that happen because we're together as a church. We get to stir one another up to believe. That's what I get to do and you get to do with each other today. Help you believe when you can't believe and stir you up to do good works. 
I told the first service that we had a pretty big need in India that we don't, our, our orphanage goes out into all the Hindu villages with a projector to show the Jesus film, and it broke last month. They don't have the projector. They can't do evangelism. And I just said that's a need of your brothers, and I love it. It wasn't five minutes after the service. Somebody bought it because the message stirred them up to good deeds. Because we gather together, we can love one another as Christ has loved us. It's a great place to learn how to love is when the church, when there's a lot of people that are different than you, and some of them are weird. <laughs> you learn how Christ loves weird people. In the church, we get to gather corp. At the church, we get to carry one another's burdens. After the first service, there was a lot of burden sharing, heavy burden sharing that went on throughout this building. And the, the load is beginning to be carried by, by many. In the church, we get to encourage one another and be encouraged by one another. In the church, because we're trying to do this thing together, yeah, the gift, you get to be taught. Isn't there a lot of more joy in your heart now than there was two hours ago at home when you were fighting? Because you're getting taught. And I get to get taught in the church. It's a gift of grace to be allowed the privilege of, 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 of giving to each other. I want to share with you today five little statements about the stones that God is building and using in His church, of which you are a part, living stones. God uniquely shapes place and places each stone the way He wants. I think the biggest lie you could believe is that you're a part of this church and your life doesn't count. God never adds anybody to a church without a purpose. You may have not found exactly how you roll in the kingdom, but let me just tell you this. You occupy, you occupy a place in the kingdom of God that cannot be occupied by anyone else. There are ways that you reveal God and you say His name that no one else has ever said His name, either to Him or to other people. Don't ever doubt your unique shape is beautiful and important. Two, God limits or God links all stones you know why I'm looking forward to coming Friday night to the FX conference? Because I really want to meet this brother from Albania. Because you see, when you're building a building, most of the stones don't, are not next to each other. you got stones on the east side of a building that have no idea who the stones are on the west side of the building. But God says, I want you to care about the stones in the east if you live in the west. If you live in the west, I want you to care about the Christians in the east. So I want to find out who's hurting overseas, what missionaries need prayer, even though I don't know them. When we gather every Sunday and we pray for the persecuted church, you are praying for people that you don't know but are fellow stones. It's not about you. It's about our corporate need, our corporate pain. So I love the church because we get to love other stones even if we don't know them. 
Third, God deserves glory from his stones. God has made you whatever gift you have. There's a reason, however you look, however you're shaped, I want to tell you there's a reason that God has made you that way and that is not that you would receive attention. We're not on this earth to have the spotlight on us but to shine on the magnificence of Jesus Christ. You were made in such a beautiful way that everything about you should point to Christ. You know, last week we looked at the building of the Burj Khalifa in, um, in Dubai. It's a half mile tall, the tallest building in the world. And when you look at that building, it brings glory to man. You look at that building and you say, look what man can do in six years. But we'll look at another temple at the end of the sermon. Look what God can do. Your life is to point not to your strength, but to Christ's magnificence. Fourth, God deserves purity from his stones. Look how Paul describes the character of the bricks that he uses to build with. That God uses. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple. So God doesn't just put together living stones. He puts together holy stones. Because there's not a trace of unholiness in God. You could take God and put him under a magnifying glass 10,000 times, and you will not find anything but the purity that you see on the surface. You want God to be without sin. You want God to be perfectly pure. How would you like for the strongest person in the world to be governing the world and to be flawed and susceptible to violence and cruelty and false motives? You want purity in God. And listen, if you're lost in a jungle and you come across a river that's flowing from the down through the mountains and right before you, you want to know one thing. Is that stream perfectly pure or is it filled with some contamination you want it pure you want that stream pure when you start drinking it to know God you bring him a respect for his purity a respect for his holiness because to know God he wants the wholeness of your life and the holiness of your life, the full devotion of your life, because there is nothing in him except light. God does not receive glory by people who live their life swimming and drinking from a dirty river of, of sin. Number five, fifth lesson about stones. God decides the timing for all of his stones. The stones do not need to worry about how the construction is going. They just need to find their place and let God place them and let God decide when the building is going to be finished. I don't have a big bucket list in life in the sense that I got to do these things or I feel incomplete, but there's some little wishes. One of my little wishes is I would like to travel to Barcelona, Spain to see the Sagrada Familia. It is a Catholic basilica designed to tell the story of Christianity through 
its architecture. It was first, the first block was laid in 1882. The architect only stayed on the site for two years and he was replaced by the architect that really began its completion, Antony Gaudi. When it's completed, the Sagrada Familia should be able to accommodate 13,000 people. It's decorated on three different sides with the story of Scripture. One side tells the story of the birth of Christ. The other side tells the story of His suffering, His crucifixion. The other side tells the story of the glory of Christ, His resurrection, and His ascension to heaven. When the building is finished, it'll have 18 towers. Twelve of the towers represent the apostles. Four of the towers represent the gospels. One tower is dedicated to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And then there's another tower that ascends 500 feet above them all. And that represents Jesus Christ. And on top of that tower is a cross that can be seen shining for 60 miles. There's a couple things I love about the Sagrada Familia. One is I love... The story of the builder, Antony Gaudi, he came to a point in his life where he said he was not satisfied with the progress of the building unless he was actually on site. So he built a little small dwelling inside the temple, inside the cathedral, so he could be there 24 hours a day. The church was that much of a priority for him. And I just want to say thank you to those of you at Hope Point who are crazy relentless volunteers that are here so often giving your life, whether it be holding babies or directing traffic in the parking lot, uh, holding a camera and leading small groups and working with youth and serving coffee and coming up to do administrative work during the week. But my life has been so blessed by people who are like Anthony Gaudi that tend to, they, they sort of live at the church. They, they understand that the church is a big deal. And they give their life for the advancement of God's work through the church. And it's a priority of their life. It's a priority of their time. It's a priority of their giving. And they've been such a blessing because that's the stones upon, God, upon which God builds Great works. The last thing I love about the Sagrada Familia is a statement that was made by Antony Gaudi when he was asked how long it's going to take to build this. He said, my guess is approximately 200 years. And when he was asked, did he have any problem that something could take such a lengthy, would have such a lengthy completion date, he responded, don't worry, my client isn't in a hurry. <laughs> this is what I love about God. 21 centuries, and our God in heaven will wait for a man to live and squander his life for 80 years and on his deathbed, God will still wait, and that man receives Christ, and God will give him the entire kingdom of Jesus. He'll wait. And the only reason God has not come back today 
is he's waiting for somebody. He may be waiting for somebody in this very room, but he isn't in a hurry. So here's my challenge to you. How dare we criticize the Lord's church when it's slow and seems to be inefficient and even seems to be taking backward steps? When God says, I'm not giving up on my church, who are we to say, I'm giving up on the church? I know better than God how to do the work of the kingdom, and it's not the church. You don't hear God talk like that. He's not in a hurry. He's waiting for his church every day to repent, to believe, to worship, to serve, to trust, to enjoy him. I don't think you can have a conversation about temples without looking at the Bible's greatest temple, the Temple of Solomon, a temple that was covered with gold valued at $80 billion in today's currency. One of my favorite descriptions of the building of the temple is found in 1 Kings 6-7. In building the temple, only blocks dressed at the quarry were used. No hammer, chisel, or any other iron tool was heard at the temple site while it was being built. This has got to be really one unusual construction site. That all of the chiseling was done at the quarry, and when the stones were transported to Jerusalem and the temple was built, there was, it was not allowed that any work would be done on it there with chisels. It's just another one of those verses in the Bible. Go, Why'd you put that in there? Like, I am trying to live this Christian life. I need to witness. I want to do how to obey. Why do you put it over? Because it is a picture of heaven. That there will come a time in your life when the pain is over. And God will no longer be chiseling the frustrations of work. All the duties of home. You're resisting sin. The sorrows of this earth, your broken heart, your broken body, depression, disease, figuring out how to do ministry when you try to lead people and you pour your life into them and after three or four or five years, they just ghost you. All of that one day will be over because God's work in you will have been complete and you'll enjoy the finished product in heaven. But because you're alive today, it's obvious that he's not finished with you, so are you letting him chisel? If you're not in heaven, he's chiseling. Painful, hard, he's chiseling. He chiseled on Jesus. I don't have this verse up here, but Hebrews, you could read it later, 5, 7. So Jesus was chiseled by God. He learned obedience from what he suffered. He chiseled Jesus. He'll chisel you. One day the chiseling will be over. But right now, here's the question you need to ask. I am a living stone. God, I'm not in heaven, so you're not done with me. What do you want me to do to advance the cause of Christ and the building up of your church? That's the question you all be asking today. I'm here, not there. Why here? 
What you want me to do? How can I be a blessing to your church? To your missionaries? And please don't answer that question by insulting God, by trying to say, well, I know he can't do much in my life because I'm this really malformed stone. I'm a little stone. I see big stones. I'm a little one. So you're going to limit God. You're just going to make up the rules of what God can't do through your shape. Don't do that. Look what God says about the power of his stones. Ephesians 2, 22, and in him, you two are being built up together by becoming a dwelling in which God lives by his Holy Spirit. Wow. You know, last week, I told you I was stunned. That verse in Ephesians 2, 18, that says, Christ died on the cross to give you access to God, that you could walk into God's gardens. You could walk through the fence to his fountains, into the very throne room of the king, and sit down. You have access to God. I said, that blows me away. I thought that was like great news. I got better news. Not only do you have access to God, but now he lives in you. He's in me. Holy God. Do you remember what God said about the Corinthians? Pagan city. I mean, every imaginable type of sin was being immersed in by the culture. This is how he describes the church, members of the church, their pre-Christ life. He said, you were sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, Men who have sex with men, thieves, drunkards, and that's just sort of the, the class A list that he listed. Those are the, the biggies. We listen to others too. And after he says that, then he uses what I think may be the most beautiful conjunction in the Bible, the word but. I love how it pops up. I love that it pops up here. That's what you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified, declared not guilty in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And because your guilt was removed, sins washed away, look what God did. He moved in. 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Now you're the temple. Look, God has dwelled prior to the New Testament, two places. In the Old Testament, he dwelled in a tent called the tabernacle. Then when Jesus came, he dwelled in the body of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now that Jesus has died and risen from the dead, God dwells in a new place. He dwells in you by his Spirit. This is why the church works. Because the Spirit of God lives in you. That's why it cannot fail. It will not fail. The Holy Spirit is building up God's church. you got pretty good odds of success when the Spirit of God is building up the church of God. 
Listen, if you're here today and you hear anything that stirs your heart right now to love God, let me tell you why it happened. Look, 5'9", 165 pounds, once just a lump of clay, not breathing. In my mother's womb, God fashioned me and breathed life into my nostrils. I was born, then age nine, Reverend Robert Ledbetter is preaching. I said yes to Jesus, then the Holy Spirit blew eternal life, moved into my nine-year-old body. And so right now, if there's any reason you're hearing God and inclined to love Him, and you feel Him readjusting your furniture and your heart, maybe have hope, seeing the churches you've never seen it, or I want to do something with my life. It has nothing to do with this man on stage. It's the Spirit of God that's filling this house up. If there's ever a group of people that are seeing the Spirit of God do something great in their midst right now, it's, it's the Church of Iran. I watched a documentary this week. It would be good. It's wild. Still processing a lot of it, but most every person who studies church growth, I guess we'll call them churchologists, whoever they are, right now they're estimating that the fastest growing church in the world right now is the church of Iran. This is what the documentary said. Almost all the believers that are coming into this church right now are coming from Muslim background. They have no recognition by the government that they exist. No bank accounts. No 501c3s. No centralized leadership. No Bible schools. No seminaries. They own no property or no church buildings. And they are the fastest growing church in the world. And it's all occurring by the power of the Holy Spirit who's breathing fresh wind and fresh fire on people and stirring hearts to consider Christ. Iran, 40 years ago, 1979, with Ayatollah, was promised that the Islamic regime would give freedom to that nation. And now you have a nation that is filled with depressed, suicidal, drug addicts, drunks, Human trafficking is rampant, and there are many young Muslims who are saying, I did not find peace through a government-sponsored state religion of Islam. I did not find answers. I did not find satisfaction. In fact, I'm sad. And you have courageous, you know who's courageous in Iran? It's the women. 55% of the church leadership in Iran is women. Because the women, this is how God, listen, you talk about bricks that are broken. The most, some of them among the most broken people in the world today are the women of Iran. Sexually abused by their father, often. Abused by men that were brought into the house in business relationships. Abused by their husbands. Broken. Hopeless. And they hear of a man named Jesus. And they experience the power of Jesus who accepts them in their brokenness, fills them with holiness, 
gives them a place in his eternal church. And these women have become powerhouses for the Lord. I read about, and they'll share with anybody. These women are even sharing with men. These are gentle women, but courageous. They're submissive, but yet they realize they've been given an authority to go to all the world and share Christ. And hundreds of thousands of people are coming to Christ in a run. And it's amazing. They don't, they, like they'll start a church with a group of people in a matter of weeks. They don't wait. They, they don't have any pastors that have been to Bible school. They can't wait for a pastor. They can't wait for a, a trained Bible teacher. The thing they said, they, they, the, only, the criteria of every church is, is this church under the reign and dominion and power of the Holy Spirit? And they said, that's enough, the Holy Spirit. One woman, a woman who tried because of abuse had happened to her and hopelessness had happened to her, she tried to hang herself. And then when she jumped off the chair, she found herself on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. And she says, this is her witnessing approach now. Every day, I ask, what part of my testimony the Holy Spirit wants to share with the person standing in front of me? What if we lived like that? What part of my life does the Holy Spirit, what part of my testimony does the Holy Spirit want to use with the person right in front of me? And the church is, is growing. The greatest thing that could happen to Hope Point right now is that each living stone in this room would say, I don't know that kind of power. I don't know that kind of love for Christ. I, I don't want to become like the church of Iran. That's, I want to become like Jesus. I'm not asking anybody in here to leave here with guilt that we're not the church of Iran. I am asking everybody in here to say, do you think you've tasted the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit? My answer is an emphatic no. And I'm trying daily to articulate in different ways, God, Christ has bought me and He lives in me. But I want to know more of the power, the joy, the peace of the Holy Spirit. I want to do greater works than I've done in my life. I've done so much of my life in my own strength. Still am. So whatever the Holy Spirit can do that He's not done in my life, please do in me. One Westerner on the film said that the Lord wants to deal a decisive blow with dead religion in the Western church. I do believe that. One more thing that God has in store for all of us as little stones. We're little stones being built up into a mighty temple, but this temple that God is building called the church, it one day is going to live inside another temple. And that is described in Revelation 21, 22. I did not see a temple in the city. This is John talking about what he's seeing in heaven. There's temples all over the Bible. Tabernacle, temple, Herod's temple. No temple in heaven. Interesting. I did not see a temple in the city of God because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. 
The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into this city. You know what I love most about the church in Iran right now? You know, you heard on the news, government leaders, those in authority, lead mass crowds to chant daily in Iran, death to Israel. Yet, in the church of Iran, they believe that they might have the privilege in the end times of being witnesses to the Jews and for the salvation of God's people in Israel. They're begging God for the privilege of laying down their life to the point that brothers Future brothers and sisters in Jerusalem and all Palestine will see the love of Jesus Christ in the love of the Iranian church. And so that even people from Jerusalem and Judah will stream into the city of God loving Christ. So let me close with this image. In the Old Testament, God dwelled in the tabernacle. In the New Testament, God dwelled in the person of Jesus Christ. After the resurrection, God dwelled in the bodies of all believers for 21 centuries. But in the end, we will dwell inside Him. Let's pray. Father, we can't imagine what it's like to live inside God to look around and see nothing but beauty, nothing but splendor and majesty. Every step we take is on highways of pleasure. Everything about our hearts is filled with joy and longing to honor. There is no struggle. There is no confusion, frustration. No death, no hospitals, no ambulances, no police, no prisons, no forsaken children, no disunified marriages. Finally and fully, eternal pleasures to our right and to our left, in front of us and behind us. Every nanosecond of existence in eternity would be the pleasure of living inside God. We'll see colors that we've never seen, sounds we've never heard, music that far exceeds any strings and keys and voices on the stages of the sanctuaries of your earthly church. We thank you, God, that all of this was purchased by the obedient life and the agonizing death and the triumphant resurrection of Jesus Christ and is kept intact by the power of the Holy Spirit. We cry out today, God, Maranatha. Come, Jesus, come. Today, come. But if you do not, then we cry out, use us to go find another stone 
that you can make alive. Another person that's lost that can be found. Another blind eye that could be opened. Another hard heart that will say yes and made tender to Jesus. Save someone now through the singing. Save someone. Rearrange everything in their life so now they'll know what true joy is of knowing God. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Would you stand with us again?